0: Marks Brothers Council Podcast presents The Jay Hopkins Interviews, Volume 1, John Goodell. You like my announcer voice? <laughs> this is Bob Gasell. Hey, everybody. Uh, Matthew and Noah are on assignment. I believe they're on the trail of a hot uh, lead for a print of humor risk. So, anyhow, you're in for a treat today because we're going to give you the first installment in a series of vintage interviews done by Marks Brotherhood founder, and March Brothers Council legend, Jay Hopkins. And we're going to hear his 1979 talk with You Bet Your Life creator and producer, John Goodell. And luckily for you, and luckily for me, Jay is with us today. So, how are you doing, sir? I'm just fine, Bob. How are you? Good, good. Uh, This is going to be fun. So, you did a, a bunch of these interviews that we're going to be hearing over the next few months. What was the original purpose of these? Well,
1: at the time that I began uh, seeking these folks out, I had a Marx Brothers club in the Twin Cities called the Marx Brotherhood, and we also had a magazine called Remarks. So on those credentials, air quotes, mm-hmm. um, that you know gave me some sort of um, reason, I guess, to approach people by mail, and uh, in many cases they were kind enough to invite me into their homes and, you know, spend an hour or so with me on tape.
0: So how did you first come in contact with uh, John Goodell?
1: Well, I was uh, watching the quiz show at that time. It was in syndication, and I was renewing my interest in You Bet Your Life. Mm -hmm. And I just looked up his address in the phone book in Sherman Oaks, California, and wrote to him. As a matter of fact, I dug up his first reply to me so I can tell you... uh, yeah. What well, he writes in this first letter from August of 78 is, as for to Groucho, there is only one set in existence, 20 prints, no masters, and I have them. Hmm. Well, that led me to ask him if there was any way that he could make me a dub of one of those shows, and amazingly, he agreed to it. Now, I had to pay for it, but just for him to grant that Access was amazing to me. Oh, yeah. So I had a list of all the guests and all the shows, and I'm afraid the one show I chose is now rather commonplace. It's the one with Jane Mansfield. Hmm. But up until that time, I didn't think any of them were out there. And this is before YouTube, of course.
0: It's a shame that uh, they didn't package those with uh, You Bet Your Life. In the syndicated package, they would have fit right in nicely, wouldn't they?
1: Oh, Yes. Uh, Whether or not Goodell and Groucho could have um, pulled together a a new package that included the 20 CBS shows, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I wish they had, of course. Mm
0: Tell us about the particulars of the interview we're going to hear. When and where was it done, and who else was there?
1: It was in his home in Sherman Oaks, California. And uh, at that time, I was on a trip out to L.A. with... My traveling companions, David Fantle and Tom Johnson, they themselves have a long and successful history of interviewing what I would call old time showbiz celebrities. Mm-hmm. In fact, they they have a book out now with their interviews called Hollywood Heyday. Um, but in fact, they joined me at Goodell's home on a March twenty third, nineteen seventy nine. So, indeed, um, I'm very grateful. In fact, that they contributed some of the questions to the quizzing of John Goodell.
0: So, did he have any problem with you recording the interview?
1: Not at all. You know, he was delighted. Of course, he was a showman, so he he wasn't hesitate to uh, to talk to his audience for the record, and uh, he did so quite amusingly, in my opinion.
0: Great. So without further ado, let's jump into the Wayback Machine and listen to your nineteen seventy-nine talk with John Goodell.
2: Well, is your thing running? Yes, yeah, running. Oh. Um, so when did you decide to put Groucho on You Bet Your Life?
3: Well, you bet your life was a idea I got, uh just a betting program, and I uh hadn't really thought about Groucho at first, but uh, I went to the Lux Radio Theater building, which is the Huntington-Hartford Theater over in Vine Street, and they had a two-hour radio special with people from lots of different programs, and Art Linklater and I went there to do a people or funny stunt, a very cerebral type of stunt for some woman uh, with a... Blindfolded, sews a patch on a man's pants. It's <laughs> leaning over her, her, knees. You know, high yeah, class yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and my job as the producer of the show was to hold the needle.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> right.
3: And um, on that same show, Bob Hope and Groucho were doing a stand-up comedy skit mm-hmm. with scripts, and Bob dropped his script by accident, and so Groucho dropped his on purpose. And uh, they started ad-libbing, and it wasn't particularly dirty, but it was so much funnier than the script, yeah. that after the show, I went backstage and introduced myself and told him that for him to work in a scripted show was like buying a Cadillac for the purpose of hauling coal. <laughs> and um, I told him I wanted to do a quiz show, and I had this idea, but I didn't have it for anybody in particular. And he said, well, I flopped four times on the radio so far, I might as well compete with refrigerators and, uh, you know... Prizes and things like that. So we went into business together. Each put up $125 for a half of a record. Yeah, right. (laughs) We made the record uh, at the end of a house party show. We used the same audience. Oh, yeah. One of their regular daytime shows. And uh, I took it to all three networks. They all turned it down. Mm. Because they said, well, he's flopped four times on the radio so far. Mm. So naturally, he's not any good. Yeah. But then I read in the paper that a man named Alan Gelman, who was president of the Elgin American Compact Company, was coming out here from Chicago to buy the Phil Baker show. Everybody wins. Yeah. It said to buy. I hadn't bought it yet. Mm. So I called him up at the Beverly Hills Hotel and took him the the audition record and played it for him. He thought that was very funny. You remember the Marx Brothers and Coconuts? Oh yeah. And he didn't know that Groucho had flopped four times on the radio, <laughs> so he bought the show.
2: Mm. <laughs> to uh, Phil
3: Baker's... Well, Phil Baker fired his press agent for putting the article in the paper about coming out to sign before it was signed. You're rather (laughs) sneaky, aren't you? Well, you read the paper.
2: (laughs) You have to be on top of it.
3: Yeah, Yeah. people are funny or sold the same way. I already read about it in the paper that the government wanted um, Captain Flagg and Sergeant Court put off the air from NBC within one week. It was during the war, beginning of the war, because it showed enlisted men fraternizing with officers. And they didn't want that kind of an attitude during the war. Mm. So they gave one week's notice. It was in the paper. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a, on a yellow sheet of paper, I have the answer to your problem, and sent it to the names in the paper. Mm. And apparently they were quite... Uh, distra- it was a crisis because they sent back a telegram. <laughs> what is it? You know, I sent them to the people a funny record we would right. made previously. You can get things out of papers. You don't have to have agents. Agents, you know, don't help you hardly at all. <laughs> I've had agents on character. several situations, and not, not on Grouch, but then never paid any commissions because they never did anything. Mm. So you and Groucho had kind of a business We were 50-50 partners in a, right. in, a, in a partnership, and I still am partners in the estate Oh, because we have the reruns, you know. Groucho
2: didn't have an agent. It was just between you two almost. well. No oh, he had, no, yes.
3: When we got down to it, his brother Gummo was his agent, but it wasn't like a regular agent because Groucho made his own decisions. And, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes, you know, in fact, I didn't even know he had an agent when I first met him. I presumed he did. We made that, uh, uh, that audition within uh, two weeks of that show, and it was sold five weeks later, which is pretty quickly. Yeah. because it doesn't take long for the three networks to turn it down.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I didn't give it to anybody else. I, you know, it's just, uh, you just keep looking, looking yeah, at all right. kinds of things in the paper. If it's the right time, things can be in the paper, don't mean a thing, you know. Well, eventually
2: the show did end up on all three networks, right?
3: Yes, uh-huh.
2: It, it was ABC. on
3: ABC at the beginning for the Ultra American Compact Company. Then DeSoto uh, bought it and put it on CBS Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, DeSoto Plymouth Dealers of America. And then there was a, a, quite a bidding for oh, a yeah. permanent buy yeah. in the fall of 1950 as to whether it be CBS or NBC. Yeah. And uh, NBC won. They paid a little more. And I felt kind of sorry for NBC because at that time, CBS was getting yeah. all the shows away from a- NBC. They got Jack Benny, and they had a couple of others there that were important. And, and Bill Adam. Paley was a very persuasive guy, yeah. and he personally would go out and, and get those things over there, whereas Mr. General Sarnoff was that was the head of NBC, but he wasn't that kind of a man to go out and uh-huh. cater to, uh, you know, he was much cool, cooler, and so the people at NBC felt, the stars felt they weren't getting the right treatment, mm. and so uh, Mr. Paley lured him over. And there'd been quite a few of those, and I had had some friends of NBC on the West Coast that meant a great deal to them and Groucho left it up to me. He says, I don't know anything about this, John, so you decide which network. So I decided on NBC.
2: When were the best
3: rating years um, for You Bet Your Life and how were they judged back then? As that uh, ad said, that over a five-year period or six-year period, we had more viewers than anybody. Well, that's um, a little tricky. That means we were in second place almost all of that time, never in first. I mean, for the full time. Right. Lucy'd be in first for a while, and Dragonette'd be in first for a while, and somebody else would be in first. Yeah. And but then they drop. See, they were more roller coaster, and we were more steady. That's, that's right. So you add up all the viewers. Second place for six years yeah. has got more viewers than first place and fifth place and ninth place and you know that sort of thing. Mm. Now that's not the way they figure it. Uh, I presume. You... Do they have the Nielsen's? Or... Oh sure. Oh sure. Nielsen's and ARB—they had the—they figured the same ways they do today. Mm-hmm. We started in 1950 on television, and we jumped within a year to the top ten. Why mm-hmm. right, we started at the top ten, we stayed there all the time, and but we got up to second during oh I would say fifty-five, six, and seven, and along the there. Mm-hmm. Then they moved us to ten o'clock. And that wasn't quite as good because we were at 8 o'clock on Thursday night, which was the best time. Mm-hmm. And 10 o'clock we had a 39% share of the audience, which was very good, and 40. But we were opposite the untouchables, and they were getting a lot of talk. That was a big show in the early 60s. And uh, we made a mistake. We thought that we wanted to um get an earlier audience. We were getting a lot of... Uh, Letters from older people who couldn't stay up to 10 Uh o'clock. So we said we'd like to have an earlier time, and NBC said fine. And Tony, which was our sponsor, said fine Mm -hmm. at that time. uh, Last year. The last year. Uh, Yes, it was the last year. Mm -hmm. And um, so we fussed around, and finally, the only good time was 8.30 on Wednesday. And Tony, our sponsor, meanwhile wondering where we were going to go, had a chance to buy an Arthur Godfrey show, which they liked at the time, Uh the Talent Scouts, Uh and they bought 8.30 on Wednesday on CBS. So since they were going to be our sponsor, they couldn't put it on opposite themselves. (laughs) The only time on NBC available. And so NBC quickly sold the time to somebody else, and we were shut out. So they didn't have any time for us. In other words, by that time, the 10 o'clock time was gone. And we said, oh, well, we were going to stop next year anywhere, Groucho was getting a little tired. The rating was, remember, still, it's got a 39 share. Uh-huh. We we should have stayed right where we were at 10 o'clock. But it would probably only have been another year, oh. or maybe two years. Mm-hmm. And so we went into syndication, and that lasted for uh, about two or three years. It was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then they couldn't sell it at all. They you know, didn't want it anymore. I mean, you know, it just petered out.
2: Yeah, how did it start the recent re- syndication?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I had been trying to get NBC, which owned the rights because they owned the program, you see, to syndicate it again, and they said, "Oh no, it's it's too slow and it's it's old fashioned, and uh, it would cost 70000 $70, dollars to pay up certain mm. unions on to, to try another run." You see. You can pay all your unions up for so many runs, but if you ever take one more run, like the fourth run, uh, you know, everywhere, or the fourth run in one city, it makes all fourth run payments due and payable. I see. Then you're allowed to put them in all the other cities for the fourth run. Mm -hmm. But going into that one city for the fourth run triggers the after payments and the musicians' payments and... uh, Everyone that was associated with the show had to get residuals. Well, it, it wasn't the, yes, that's true, but it's the musicians. You know, there was about 15 or 20 of them. Mm. So that went on and on and on, and I finally gave up, and Groucho would ask me, just get that show on there. I look at these things, new situation comedies, and ours are good, and I'd say, yeah, I'll try Groucho and everything. And so then one day, in the summer of 73, they called me from New Jersey and said, uh, NBC, warehouse and said, uh, Mr. Goodell, would you like a set uh, for your for your garage <laughs> of the Groucho Marx show, You Bet Your Life? Mm-hmm. I said, what do you mean a set for my... He says, well, we're destroying them uh, because we need the space here in New Jersey, and uh, we thought maybe we'd send you one, if you would like if you'd pay for the shipping. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean destroying them? And he said, well... Uh, you mean the negatives? He says, yeah. I says, there's 250 of them. How many have you, have you destroyed? Are you doing it right this minute? He says, yeah. <laughs> he said, well, um, hey, Charlie, how many? He said, well, I've destroyed 15. He says, stop. Uh, just stop him. Stop him. Well, he says, okay. Something some nut here on the phone. Just stop him. So he stopped and he said, look, just don't do any more. I'm going to talk to New York, which is across the river, and uh, make some kind of a deal. It's ridiculous. And I did. I called him right then and said, look, if you can't get anybody to syndicate it, I'll syndicate it. Instead of burning them up, put them all in a big box and send them to me in Los Angeles. So that's the remaining 235 negatives of the 250. And they had a bunch of prints.
2: Now, Bernie Smith spoke of 250 that he had to choose out of the entire collection which he had at one time. And I think he had to um, get rid of all the ones that Doc Tyler would on, done, right? Doc Tyler wouldn't sign. Wouldn't agree. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So he didn't get anything. I guess he held a grudge or something,
3: right? Because he was fired? Yeah, well, I guess so. I don't know. He was... Or maybe he, he, he just of one Doc about. Tyler was an amazing man. He was brilliant. A brilliant doctor. Mm-hmm. He was one of, the, he's one of the foremost authorities on... Um, Fertility. Fertility, yeah. And uh his brother, I think, is head of John Hopkins. But anyway, he, he wrote jokes on the side. Loved to write jokes. And uh, he was pretty good, but, you know, he was... um He had this other job. We always felt that he'd be much better off if he'd stay with it. And he was doing a, a very big good, but here he's spending a lot of time around our place writing jokes. But anyway, he wouldn't agree, and he went to his death without agreeing.
0: But at any rate...
3: Uh, so they were burning like the They sent them before. out here. And did you know they've been sitting in that warehouse for eight years or so? And then they decide to send they sent them by air. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have to have them now. Yeah. <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> the bill was twenty seven hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And I called up Groucho, I said, Would you like to go in partners with me as a syndicator uh, of your stuff? Mm-hmm. Take over NBC's job. I made a deal with royalty for each station, mm-hmm. depending on the size of the market. And uh, he said, sure. I said, okay, you owe me $1,350 already. It's your half of the shippage, and it's coming to your house. <laughs> and it did. We had to send there and put this around. Yeah. So uh, I took it to um, John Reynolds, his friend of mine, and uh, I told him he could run it for 13 weeks for $54.88. What was that a
2: locally? Day.
3: Yeah, KTLA, Channel 5 in Los Angeles. Oh. And I told him the reason... Was I want to be? I want to run it locally for sure. If it doesn't run anywhere else, well, say Laguerre, But because Groucho can see it, yeah, right, and it's so much better than him walking upstairs to his bedroom and running a motion picture of because mm-hmm. that's what he was yeah. doing.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So he could turn it on yeah. at eleven o'clock at night. And I said the charge will be fifty-four dollars and eighty-eight cents because NBC was to get twelve fifty for their royalty. And the rest went to the musicians, which I made a deal. I would go out and make deals with these people. Those, I'm not talking about any $70,000. Uh, know, so I said, and I made deals with all of the the um, percentages that were due, the individuals, the Bernie Smith, Bob Gwan, and so forth.
2: What kind of I got them all to take
3: half. Oh, really? I mean, you know, until we caught up to see mm-hmm. if it would work or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, otherwise, the money that would be coming in would... Well, they off so, In the first place, they all forgave KTLA. Nobody took anything except the musicians on KTLA. Mm -hmm. See how it worked. Then after it got on, then KTLA picked up and became part of it later.
2: What did the musicians get
3: as compared to the directors? Oh, musicians were not in on the participation. Participation is the ownership of the the, uh, property, in a way. Ownership of the property, but that is... Uh, NBC actually owns it, but I mean if there was run on any syndication. It was our fault, Uh, not fault, but it wasn't just guilds. The guilds, the writer, the directors, and the actors, have certain guilds that have certain minimum requirements. And whatever money we gave in percentage had to meet or be more than those requirements. Uh, Since NBC was paying the original syndication Uh and... Groucho and I were not involved in the profits of that. We had a certain percentage, but 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 fees, but not involved with the uh, In other words, it came out of NBC's money. I said, "Well, we have to have the secretary on the show and this other secretary and my brother-in-law who was a people getter, uh-huh. and uh, we had about seven or eight and Miriam Allen, Groucho's uh, daughter, who had oh. absolutely nothing to do with the show." And uh, she was credited as the. Um while well, program. Uh, yeah, I know. She was. Well, she did something once in a while, but uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm not. I'm talking about for percentages. She yeah. worked on the show. Oh, yeah. Sort of. <laughs> but um, she thought up questions once in a while. Hmm.
2: I think Bernie Smith says she thought up questions occasionally. Maybe. When did you talk to him? I saw him about three days ago. Oh, you've already had a meeting with him. Is not that yeah. so? He's I mean, a real nice guy, isn't he? Though. You know what he allowed me to do. He got out the original records that he had, mm-hmm. and he loved me a copy, which is great, because I had been looking up TV Guide and writing down what I could find, which didn't amount to
3: much. Oh, you mean the records of... Uh, Program dates and contestants. Oh, good, good. He's uh, he got that. I remember that. I remember he did say that. Uh, yeah. um, I wonder if he's got them listed. Under the circ- we were trying to get numbers here the other day like 40 50 well anyway it doesn't matter the numbers are are done a little differently than uh... The way we just, when we got these 250, we numbered them number one, number two, mm-hmm. number three. Oh. Because we were looking through them to see what yeah. content were in them. I see. And there is a number, 5714, which is 1957, number 14. Yeah. And all of the other official papers have them listed that way. I see. And so the, our secretary will get a thing. So we want the music on 5714, 5715. She looks at me and says, is that number two or number 16? <laughs> I said, I don't know. Andy Marks was was the guy that did the original, uh, I mean, he was, uh, was, Groucho wanted to give him a job. That's his grandson. Yeah,
2: right. Yeah. So he was just kind of
3: filing them and putting them in order? Oh, no, he'd have to run them. He'd have to run one and then decide who was in. It took him a long time. Oh. But he was getting paid and he ran them over there at the house. Yeah, I wouldn't mind. And then write down, you know, who was on, how long, and what music was on particularly was that all just by looking at it.
2: Is that all 246 or whatever 235
3: yeah oh wow um the writers would get about 8% of the gross and then they settled for 4 and then later on came up to 6 or something mm-hmm. i would say um, most of the people between uh, 3 and 4% I along see. there, 5%
2: Still, it's... Yeah. Oh, sure, so, sure. They're grateful to get anything. I should
3: say, because it's, it's all found money. When you rescue a bunch of stuff from the fire, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know that it is found that money. That reminds me of something.
2: You're known for other things other than studying. Uh, you bet your life and people are funny and all that. One of them being reruns. And that's kind of like the same thing, getting paid for the same work twice. But uh, could you tell me how that came about?
3: How you well, there are three me. things I think that I'm supposed to have been contributed know, to television. All matter. three are terrible. <laughs> All three are blights on the. Yes. The we'll landscape. get her onto that later. Well, one of them is the reruns. Yeah. It wasn't very. It wasn't very uh, difficult. Uh, it was just that we uh, just decided to run house party o- o- over. I uh, mean, in the summer. The very first summer, they allowed tape or recordings. You see, they never allowed recordings until the fall of 47. And I want to tell you something. If it hadn't been for allowing recordings, I don't think we'd be sitting here now. I don't think there would ever been a Groucho show. And it was, it was within a week that this it was. The, the timing was such. I'd, maybe you haven't heard this. Every show had to be live. Uh, you, uh, the shows that left here at 7 o'clock that went to New York, and 7 here and 10 there, they do one show. Yeah. But earlier than that, or 6 o'clock, we had a Tommy Dorsey show that was on at 8.30 in New York. And lots of shows, lots of shows were on at 8.30 in New York. Big variety shows. Mm-hmm. They would have to do them at 5.30 here, live. Mm-hmm. Then they would go out to dinner, and come back and do them again, exactly, all live, at 8.30. Mm -hmm. And this was the way it was done from the beginning of radio. This We're talking about radio. Mm -hmm. The beginning of radio up to um, 1947 in October. And then they decided they'd allow recordings.
2: That's right, when you get your life started. And
3: once, well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you how it worked. The original record we made, we edited it. We pulled out stuff to make it sound oh, better. And we were so concerned because we knew this guy was not going to be anywhere near as good on a live show as on a tape show because he just is uncontrollable yeah. and, and he'd be right in the middle of somebody and go off the air because the time was yeah, up. Yeah, like Fred know. Allen did. It would have been a lousy show. Mm-hmm. The point yeah. is we would have been canceled in the, th- the first 13 weeks. There isn't any doubt about it. Mm. But we went ahead on the basis that, well, maybe we can because they liked it. They'd listen to the record and it would sound good, but they didn't know you'd pull a lot <laughs> stuff yeah. out of the record. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, they finally, on a Tuesday, we were going on the air the following Monday. On a Tuesday, the network came through that's okay to have recordings. Uh-huh. And so what we did is gather people together, write a script, I mean, quickly, and make a show on Saturday two days before the show that the people had the tickets for. So we really, we scrounged around, we got some contestants, and we, uh, it's our first show. It was just now suddenly two days earlier than the first show was going to be, and also another show two days later. We're all new to this. but well, we made it. We got enough people in the audience, no tickets or anything. We made it. Now, that show went on the air Monday night, while the people that came to see the first show saw a taping of the second show, I and see. from then we got ahead, and, and so we That's edited. For example, the show we made on that Saturday night ran 42 minutes, and we got it down b- before Monday to uh, 29
2: minutes. Hmm. did Bernie Smith uh, tell you about the av- the Groucho usually filmed, what, about 45 minutes for each half-hour show? Yeah. was average, is that about right? Mm-hmm. You know, speaking mm-hmm. of filming, they also had to innovate that. Was it three-camera system? hmm
3: Lucy had a three-camera system. Although I guess they didn't start as soon as we did. We started on television very early, 1950. Oh, yeah. Oh. In September 50. And I know Lucy was doing three cameras over at Desilu. Uh Ours were fixed cameras. Uh, ours was a little different than Lucy's because I think they would jump around. No, I guess they'd they, they film everything. we waste a lot of film on the three-camera system. You know, because every all cameras are all taking everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you got four times as much as you need, even for the number of extra minutes you have. But uh, Bob Dwan was quite a guy to do the editing on that. He, he was the director of the show. But Bernie was, a, was the mainstay, the greatest contributor, because, you know, he was the, the, I would say, the head writer mainly. And producer to the extent I was producer, but... He was. I'm more of an executive producer. Yeah. Than he was more of a producer. High Friedman was a, was a very good writer. He was on the show. I guess as a writer, he'd be called the head writer. And High's still around, and uh, we may do a um, a bet your life type show with somebody else using the, the same people. The same people. No, using High Friedman. Oh, and Bob yeah. Duan. Yeah. And maybe Bernie Smith uh-huh. if he's available. Well... Maybe well, with Don Rickles.
2: Rickles? <laughs> mm-hmm. will it be the same type? No, of, no, it,
3: it's a, it wouldn't be the same name. and But I mean, it would utilize the idea of the juxtaposition of uh, unusual partners. Yes. Like the prostitute uh-huh. and the judge. uh uh-huh. That's an unusual part. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was That's really one of the keys to that show is the chemistry created by partners who shouldn't be partners, and most of them. We had General Mark Clark or Omar Bradley, yeah. Yeah. and a buck private that just joined a couple of days ago, you know, and they're together draft as
2: partners. Great. Oh, right.
3: awesome. I mean, you know, you see how he'd feel. Yeah. Better than being a draft
2: dodger. <laughs> with
3: yes, that would be awful. Yeah, that, that's, that's really putting it all away, a draft dodger. Um, this new show in particular would have, a, it's called Uneasy Partners. The oh, great lady
2: that's the whole...
3: R- gets right to the point. Yeah. It. And it goes as far as to have a, people from small claims courts that were formally against each other. Yeah,
2: oh, let's see. Well, Bernie Smith insists that, I think he said about 75 or 80% of the show was written.
3: Maybe. Yes, I, I would say it would be. Mm-hmm. But those twenty percent that lives are very important ones because you could feel them.
0: You know, they yeah.
3: he'd get off on a track with somebody, which was not written, and follow them right down to the end of the stuff with Bill. Uh-huh. I've always likened the show to a um, building a wall. You build a brick wall you first, have a wall. You have to put up a scaffolding. Yeah. The scaffolding is the writing. Then you put up the wall, and then you tear down the scaffolding. Yeah. And uh, because you need it to get the wall up then you take a lot of it away. Now, while 80% may be written at the beginning, before edited, mm-hmm. I don't think it would be maybe 80% after editing. I would say the majority is definitely written that shows on the air. I think what he meant is 80% is written of what is photographed that night. I In other see, words, I over see. 30 minutes of the show, let's say 45. Mm-hmm. But uh Groucho did... Uh, he was, a, he was a great ad libber but these were some awfully good help. Right. I mean, you take lines like, uh, that just come out of the top of his head, which is a very cute line, I think he wrote it, is a man had a bicycle that he was a very expensive $50,000 bicycle that would go on water with a lot of motors and things. And he said, I could take this $50,000 bicycle and go to Catalina in and Groucho said, "Well, for fifty thousand dollars, we could have Catalina towed to yeah. the mainland."
2: <laughs> 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 it's funny. I think one of the great things about the show and how it came off so well with the uh, Libs is that same staff, more or less, stayed on, and they knew the feel that Groucho
3: had. For these we guys. had very little change. I think the only change was when Doc Tyler, after four or five years, was fired, and another writer came in took his place, Howard. Yeah, that's right. Now, that's not much change for a show that's on 14 years. Yeah. 11 of them on television uh, and radio and three on radio. Well, I think I better get going. (laughs) Yeah, Jay.
0: So there you go. Great. Jay, um, any new memories flash in your head as you listen to it again?
1: Well, I told the story that I was uh, late because he Told me to be there at six a.m. and right. when, when I hung up the phone, I my my brain didn't accept that information. My brain said he must have said eight in the morning. Hmm. So I showed up with Dave and Tom promptly late at eight o'clock, and of course that that was my face-to-face introduction to John Goodell. He came out out of his house with a smile and he said, "You're late." <laughs>
0: <laughs> hmm things so did got you, better so did you keep in touch with john much afterwards
1: yeah he sent me a few letters after this and uh he was very um tolerant of me i was always asking him for details about the quiz show i was usually interested in any extant records of who the guests were and that type of thing a lot of that information i did get from bernie smith but i was also quizzing uh Goodell on that point, and uh, he helped me in as much as he could.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for your generosity in sharing this with us, as well as the other ones that are coming up. Um, To hear our full discussion with Jay, please seek out Marx Brothers Council Podcast, episode number 15, where we talk about this and lots of other Marx-related things. So that about does it for now. Jay, once again, please introduce our final song.
1: You're not going to get me on that twice, Bob.
0: <laughs> What's the song?
1: Um, who put the overhauls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder?
0: <laughs> is that a real song?
1: That is a real song. I kid I'm gonna you not. Look it
0: up and I'm going to look it up and play it.
1: I sure hope you do. Okay. <laughs>
4: Mrs. Murphy's chowder, nobody spoke, so he shouted all the louder. It's an Irish trick, that's true, I can lick the make that through the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder. Mrs. Murphy gave a party about a week ago. Everything was plentiful, well, the Murphys, they're not slow. They treated us like gentlemen, we tried to act the same, only for what happened, (laughs) it was an awful shame. Mrs. Murphy dished the chowder out and fainted on the spot, she found a pair of overalls at the bottom of the pot. Tim Nolan, he got ripping mad, his eyes were bulging out, he jumped upon the piano and loudly he did shout. Who threw the overhauls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder? Nobody spoke, so he shouted all the louder. It's an Irish trick, that's true, I can lick the mick that threw. The overhauls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder. Dragged the pants from out the soup and laid them on the floor Each man swore upon his life he'd not seen them before They were plastered up with mortar and were worn out at the knee They had their many ups and downs as we could plainly see When Mrs. Murphy she came to she starts to cry and pout She'd had them in the wash that day forgot to take them out Tim Nolan he excused himself for what he'd said that night So we put music to the words and sung with all our might Who threw the overhauls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder? Nobody spoke, so he shouted all the louder It's an Irish trick, that's true, I can lick the mick that threw The overhauls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder